Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> Again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, US Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And this time, John, cancel culture has gone too far. A perfectly healthy partnership deal between a professional sports team and a tout service predicting sports results has been canceled because a few whiny people on the internet complained. Uh, I I hope my sarcasm is coming across there. Uh, Anyway, uh, the deal between the Vegas Golden Knights and you pick trade that we discussed on last week's podcast lasted a grand total of three days. Uh, John, do you think Gamble On could sell picks regarding how long ill-advised sports betting partnerships will last? Uh, Because we had this one pegged last week and told all of our subscribers to take the under. Yeah, you know, it's almost a shame that others have to be so dumb in order to make us look relatively smart, but (laughs) hey, we'll take it, right? So, you know, I had mentioned interviewing NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman just a few weeks after the Supreme Court opened that Pandora's box of sports betting in May 2018, and I realized that this is how lawyers often roll. You swear on your life that you believe one thing, then as soon as you lose your case, it's like it's a blank slate. (laughs) So that's why I said on last week's podcast, and I do quote, For those who are outraged by this, I'd say go for it. You've got a shot here. And I was saying that because for Commissioner Bettman, this is not a hill he's willing to die on. And I'd warn the Golden Knights of that. So, So, uh, do I think Bettman was outraged by this deal initially? (laughs) I doubt it. Uh, Let one franchise float a trial balloon and see if any snipers take it down. And as you note, they did. Oh, they did. (laughs) So, um, look, teams in several leagues have struck deals that they might have thought would give the public pause, given that six years of battling New Jersey over sports betting in the courts, and then suddenly they're so eager to cut these deals. But for the most part, there's hardly been a peep. So this was the the tripwire that, that put things over the top. You know, it's like the teams are wondering, and the leagues even, they're kind of wondering how far does this rubber band stretch anyway to mix elastic metaphors? Uh, <laughs> now we know, don't we? Yeah, we sure do. And uh, yeah, those snipers that you referred to, uh, man, it is so hard to get the people on social media to agree on anything. Uh, But this one was damn close to 100%. If there were people out there supporting this partnership, I I wasn't seeing them. Uh, So yeah, it's it's no surprise that the Golden Knights caved and caved quickly. Uh, This was the Dennis Rodman, Carmen Electra of sports betting marriages. Uh, I, I had the under on that one also, by the way. Yeah, there, there was an attorney who came out and tried to, you know, be a contrarian, I guess, and say, oh, it's not really that bad. And uh, uh, one of our colleagues uh, uh, yes, sort of right. vivisected that. And I must say to the attorney's credit, he said, you know, this is a well-reasoned piece and I can see why you looked at it that way, which, you know, that sounds a little like Gary Bettman, actually. That's, that's how they go. <laughs> yep. So these, these attorneys, yep, that's the deal. You, uh, you take a hard stance and then, uh, like you just said, pretend you never had that stance and start fresh. <laughs> Exactly. All right. Thank you to everyone out there for joining us for episode number 132 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 131 episodes, they're all available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We are almost a full year into quarantine, and we're still pumping out podcasts every week. If that doesn't warrant a five-star rating in your podcast app, I don't know what does. Uh, indeed. And coming up a little later in the show, we're going to be joined by Roto Grinders Director of Media, Dan Bach. He's going to discuss the NBA Top Shot phenomenon and share his thoughts on how it relates to gambling and whether the biggest payouts are yet to come. 
But first, it's been a reasonably busy week in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. There are a few states making possible progress toward legalizing sports betting these days, but none is more fascinating at the moment than Connecticut, where we're seeing forward momentum and a butting of heads at the same time. There are two tribes with casinos in Connecticut, the Mohegan tribe affiliated with Mohegan Sun Casino and the Mashantucket Pequot tribe connected with Foxwoods. As Governor Ned Lamont announced on Tuesday, the Mohegan tribe has reached a deal with the state on implementation of legal sports betting and online gaming. At the time of that Tuesday announcement, the Pequots were reportedly close to a deal with Connecticut. And on Wednesday, they expressed displeasure that Lamont announced an agreement with the rival tribe instead of waiting for both deals to be complete. Uh, In that statement, Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Chairman Rodney Butler used the words offensive and disrespectful. Uh, The Pequot tribe reportedly wants a lower tax rate than what the Mohegans agreed to. That's the main hangup preventing their deal from getting finalized. Meanwhile, the tribes have already conceded that it won't be a duopoly as the Connecticut Lottery will have its own digital sports book and up to 15 retail locations, at least in the plan that the state is currently putting forward. All in all, it's clear that some progress has been made in Connecticut, but it's all rather contentious and one wonders if they can get along well enough, long enough to cross the finish line. What do you think, John? Are these encouraging developments on the whole, or is it same old, same old in Connecticut and, and the squabbling will translate to nothing getting done this year? Yeah, I, I, I can't decide if after all these years, I should be proud or ashamed that I totally bought into this one with the governor's announcement. I was like, wow, I've been, you know, I've been shorting this one for a couple of years, like many others, including New York. And then suddenly I'm like, well, that's it. It's done. And uh, I should know better as a grizzled <laughs> journalist, but maybe this shows I haven't yet gone full curmudgeon. So that's why I'm a little torn. Uh, now, Connecticut is unique in having exactly two tribes and exactly two very influential lobbying groups working for very influential tribes. So Foxwoods and Mohegan Sun, they're each among the biggest casinos in the country. Now, reading between the lines, I, th- I, think, the gov- I think the Governor Lamont's perceived impudence is going to cost them a modest extra price at the bargaining table. And I also think it's a price he's going to be willing to pay. You know, bringing together all the moving parts in the state would rank as an impressive achievement uh, that I would expect all Kinetic- Connecticutians, Connecticutians. <laughs> Connecticut, Whatever the Connecticut people, all <laughs> Connecticut residents uh, to sure. notice. Yeah. Uh, and this will prevent all the millionaires who live in Greenwich from having to schlep 45 minutes across mobile sports betting free New York State and into a truck stop on Route 287 in Mawa, just over the New Jersey border. Uh, though I hope some of them are savvy enough to be going a couple extra minutes to the Mason Jar restaurant to get some of the finest rack of ribs in the Northeast. And anything that makes millionaires lives easier is good by me. Uh, to double back to one of the things you said at the beginning there, never go full curmudgeon, John. That's uh, okay. that's that's my advice. Uh, yeah. I, so I saw some speculation about Foxwoods and DraftKings getting cut out, uh, but that doesn't really seem possible to me. I, I think that's a, a, a misinterpretation uh, based on the way the news rolled out. I can't imagine Foxwoods not being a part of this. Uh, and, and in fact, Connecticut lawmakers sent Lamont's office a letter saying nothing gets done unless both tribes are included. Um, But it still seems like Connecticut might be headed toward giving its citizens not a whole lot of options. There there might only be three mobile sports books in the state, which is certainly better than a monopoly, but, you know, still not enough to really give the betters the full experience. But, you know, never, never count your chickens and uh, and all that. I'm 
it's hard to say at this point if this is headed toward a conclusion soon and getting something passed or if uh, if we should all be uh, assuming this is going to fall apart and blow up in their in their face and we're still a year or two away. Um, if it does happen to pass, as we've discussed, uh, Connecticut is not in and of itself a large state or a major state, but uh, it borders New York. Uh, if it passes, it siphons more betters and tax dollars away from New York. It borders Massachusetts. Uh, so if Connecticut does cross the finish line, I do think it helps spur action in New York and Massachusetts that much sooner. This this could turn out to be a really crucial domino in terms of getting all the remaining pieces of the Northeast puzzle on board. Yeah, it's definitely the, the connector piece, I think. But, you know, I, I thought the possibility was that it would all Connecticut could ever hope for was uh, – in-person betting at Fox Jose Mohegan Sun, and that's it. So anything they get that's more than that, which is, this will be more, is is something. This was never going to be wild, wild west. It's not going to be New Jersey. It's not going to be Michigan. It's not going to be Colorado. So there was never hope for that. So I think I think this deal is pretty good, and I think uh, if it goes through, it's about the best anybody could hope for. You referring to it as the connector state just uh, made me realize, is that where the name Connecticut comes from? Is it was it was it was it, was it considered some sort of connection between uh, different states or is that just random coincidence that connect is in the, the name? nutmeg state? But I think the connector state might be better. Yeah, yeah there we go. Let's let's rebrand the nickname of Connecticut. I like it. <laughs> right. All right. Our next story is a big one for the Las Vegas casino industry. Less than two months after the death of Sheldon Adelson, his former company, Sands Corp, has sold its Vegas properties and operations to Apollo Global Management Group for the tidy sum of $6.25 billion. Those properties include the Venetian, the Palazzo, and the Sands Expo and Convention Center. Uh, Vegas properties have lost their luster to some degree since the pandemic started, and the folks running Sands now decided to get out and are reportedly focusing on their operations in Asia uh, and, ironically, given Adelson's stance uh, on, on online gaming in the U.S. There are rumors that Sands might look to buy 888 Holdings, which is involved in online poker, casino, and sports betting, and has a partnership with Caesars. As our colleague Brian Pempis said to me in a Slack message, what could be more ironic than Adelson's former company going on to own WSOP.com? Uh, in any case, the Sands company is out of Vegas. It's unclear whether Venetian and Palazzo will be rebranded. I'm guessing probably not, but we haven't heard anything yet on that front. Uh, John, is, is this like the end of The Godfather where Michael waits for... Uh, I'm, I'm trying to avoid spoilers for an almost 50 year old movie here, but where he waits for certain people to die before making certain big moves. Uh, and what are your thoughts on Adelson's former company focusing on the online side of things? Well, I've never seen The Godfather, so nice work by you there. Eric. Really? Uh, oh, my goodness. Yes, wow. That's true. All right. Well, now, um, you know, somebody I, dies late in the movie. <laughs> well, I, that's not a stunner. I, 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 I've seen the trailers. Um, Adelson's vendetta against online gambling was always the epitome of an anachronism uh, and something as executives and to some extent the whole gambling industry just had to tolerate. So, mm -hmm. you know, this, the, to get out of Dodge or, or Vegas in this case idea, that's really interesting to me. You know, Adelson's in instinct to like parlay, you might say, a, a massive convention center into symbiotic relationship with its casinos was utterly brilliant decades ago and, and earned him the money that he made from that vision for sure. Uh, the extent that there was going to be any homage to Adelson with this company, you know, that and not opposing online gambling would have been it. But in the end for the new regime, I guess they would say, 
this is the business we've chosen or not chosen. <laughs> there you go. All right. So, you know, you know a little bit about mafia movies, even if you haven't seen them. <laughs> I was all. pretty sure that was it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I mean, it, it's a fascinating question that I don't know if we'll ever know the answer to in terms of whether this sale would have happened right now if Adelson was still alive. Uh, but uh, my, my guess is the timing was not coincidental. But who knows? Uh, just uh, in terms of my thoughts on this uh, on a personal level, with you know Adelson as the number one most powerful opponent of uh, much of my industry, uh, not to mention a huge supporter of some political folks I wasn't a fan of. Uh, I didn't love the idea of staying in his hotel at, at G2E. Uh, I guess that was now a, a year, a year and a half or so ago. It wasn't my dime, uh, so you know I, I wasn't even close to considering boycotting the trip over it. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying it bothered it bothered me slightly. Um, so for what it's worth, if Venetian is hosting G2 again this year nice that there will be no such conflicts you know sometimes it's the little things yeah uh, for me a hotel room is a hotel room (laughs) all right our final story this week uh, is one that john has been reporting on for a while but we haven't covered it on the podcast yet but it seems to have now reached a boiling point where it's worth diving into the topic is the legal battle between atlantic city's number one casino borgata and its fastest rising competitor, Ocean, which was the property known as Revel from 2012 until it failed spectacularly and closed in 2014, only to reopen four years later under new ownership and a new name. Uh, I know you have a lot to say about this, John, so I'll just cover the basics and then hand it over to you. Borgata is suing Ocean for poaching top executives. And as we recently learned, poaching butlers and non-executive level employees as well, allegedly, uh, and using them to bring over whales, some of Borgata's highest rolling, biggest spending clients. There's a subplot about an iPhone with proprietary data that a former Borgata turned ocean employee won't hand over. There's a lot of intrigue here, and it's just fascinating to see the hotshot contender bending, if not all out breaking the rules to try to topple the champ. Uh, So John, what do you have to add? What do you find the most fascinating aspects of this? And do you think Borgata wins the case and Ocean is found guilty of illegally poaching employees? Well, you know, I mentioned before, I spent the July 4th weekend of 2003 as one of the media people waiting for Borgata's grand opening. Uh, They couldn't even announce a specific time or even a specific day for that opening because that would have been a 20 mile backup to, to get into Atlantic City's first Las Vegas level casino. So they just had cars driving in and around and around in circles and around 1 a.m. I think it was Saturday morning. Uh, suddenly the, the next cars that came along were able to you know drive into the parking garage. Uh, mm-hmm. Looked like the closing scene from Field of Dreams, if you want to think of it that way. <laughs> there you go. Um, and, you know, Borgata has ruled the city industry roost ever since. And I attended Revel's birth in 2012 as well. And as you know, it's funeral two years later. Place was gutted and reopened in mid 2018. It was actually called Ocean Resort Casino. As a way of stressing, this wasn't just a casino. Now, I remember another Atlantic City casino that tried the very same approach. It was called the Revel, and it didn't work <laughs> out so good. So, within a year, Ocean had flipped its middle and last names and found its footing. But in a million years, I couldn't have imagined the ghost of Revel Pass to be the one that kicked so much sand into big, bad Borgata. I mean, this is amazing. Lawsuit last summer focused mainly on what Borgata, as you say, called the the poaching of some top executives, uh, two in particular, uh, who who did pamper these high-spending whales. And it's noted in the lawsuit that they literally spend millions a year gambling and generally losing at the casino. So it's not just six figures, we're talking seven figures. Um, that's kind of interesting. And the cell phone melodrama and talk of trade secrets is kind of cool. 
But the recent amended complaint says even after the suit was filed, OSHA continued to kick more sand. I mean, mm. in addition to those five executives lured from the marina to OSHA down to the boardwalk, uh, the quote, and, and you alluded to it, is in this lawsuit. A little while later, OSHA hired five butlers and five other marketing and customer service professionals away from Borgata. And OSHA intends on hiring still more Borgata employees who can provide it with access to Borgata's proprietary information. Ocean has also approached Borgata's vendors with offer offers for exclusive relationships in an attempt to cut Borgata out of the Atlantic City market. Mm. <laughs> wow. I mean, now this is miles to go before it ever reaches the melodramatic level of the fabled Borgata versus legendary poker player Phil Ivey $10 million lawsuit that sadly for my writing purposes settled confidentially <laughs> more than a year or so ago. But we're off to a good start in this one. And the one commonality to your last question is I, I I can't figure out if Borgata got screwed by Ivy's scheme to gain advantage in high stakes mini baccarat hands, or if they got screwed by Ocean and seemingly gutting Borgata's most important executives. Um, Borgata attorneys have called both gambits brazen in filings, and they sure got that right. But was it legal? I think we've got miles to go before we find out if Ocean was legally brazen, if we ever do. Right. Yeah. uh, You hit on uh, a lot of the sort of humorous elements of this. Um, And and one that you didn't mention that I I found funny was just uh, Ocean giving some of these new employees titles that don't really reflect their roles just to avoid the appearance of them being hired away to do the same jobs they were doing. Poor God, that was an interesting little detail. But yeah, I mean, I think it all speaks to however it turns out, whoever ends up winning or whether it gets settled or whatever, I think it all speaks to the critical value of whales to a high-end casino. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. a a thousand everyday customers aren't worth as much to a casino like Borgata or Ocean as one or two billionaire types. When you have a guy who will drop a million bucks on a typical trip to your casino and he might make that trip five times a year, that's a difference maker when you're adding up receipts at the end of the year. Uh, and it gets me thinking about what the wars for these customers must be like in Vegas. You know, we, we don't hear about this stuff, but you yeah. know that behind the scenes, the battles over how to comp the high rollers must be extreme. Um, as a boxing journalist, this is something I've long had an awareness of, if not in great detail. But, you know, these casinos will pay these site fees to convince promoters to bring them the major fight. Uh, and then comped front row tickets to that fight are dangled as a perk to get a handful of major whales to your casino for the weekend. And if, you know, one or two of them come out and have a bad weekend at the tables, the casino has more than paid for, you know, that couple of million dollar site fee it floated to get the fight. It's a fascinating business. And um, guys like you and me are, are very much on the outside looking in at all this stuff. You know, a guy like me who sits down at the blackjack table with a stop loss of like a hundred bucks. Uh, I just fear I'm never going to get the comp penthouse suite, John. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm amazed by the loyalty given, as you say, of a lot of these customers. They, they get used to a certain hotel. They mm-hmm. might love the food. They like a lot of the people. They like the locate, whatever it is, they like it and they don't want to change. And so, you know, when, when they're enticed by other uh, casinos, I think generally what they hear is then they go to their people, you know, their butler or whatever, and mm-hmm. say, can you do this too? Because somebody else was mentioning it. And whatever it is, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Absolutely. You got it. And so then they, you know, they, they don't necessarily cross lines. I mean, we, we talk about uh, sports betting, mobile sports betting, and already the lack of loyalty in the UK. And we're trying to see if that's going to happen in, in the United States also, where there's just no loyalty. I can get a nickel better on, on this on this bet, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bet with them instead. That's it. Mm-hmm. There's no loyalty. Now, that's virtual. So how much how many perks can you give somebody online compared to in person? 
but uh, it, it is a fascinating uh, level. And I, I enjoyed sort of the little peek into that world and you know, in this lawsuit where they're at Borgata and trying to explain the damage to, to a judge. Um, they have to kind of lay out the, the details of exactly how pampered these guests are. Yep. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. Sports gambling Twitter can mostly be divided into two subcategories of people. Those who live for NBA Top Shot and those who are wondering what the heck the big fuss is with NBA Top Shot. John and I are both much closer to the latter category, and our guest right now is here to help us understand said fuss. He is a frequent guest on the podcast. He is the media director for Roto Grinders. He is our friend Dan Bach. Dan, welcome back to Gamble On. Hey, guys. Uh, excited to be here. And it's funny because I knew I was going to come back one day, but I would have never guessed. Actually, I know I wouldn't have guessed 12 months ago or six months ago that this would be the topic that we're on. But here we are. <laughs> yeah. And if I remember correctly, your last appearance was when we were doing the Bachelor DraftKings uh, uh, controversy. So it's always something that brings you onto our show. <laughs> uh, but so, yeah, let, let's talk Top Shot. Uh, at, at this point, I have a fair idea of what Top Shot is. Not a comprehensive understanding, but a fair idea. But I'd imagine some of our listeners still have no idea at all. So if someone asked you to explain NBA Top Shot to them in 60 seconds or less, what would you say to get them on a, a basic level of understanding so they can keep up with the rest of this conversation? Yeah, I'll try and keep it short. It's, it's not overly complex. It, it's basically a digital collectible. In the same way that you have sports cards, um, for say basketball, for example, you have your LeBron James card that you can have in your hand. Well, what Top Shot is, is it takes what they call moments or highlights and puts them on a quote unquote digital token, which means that there is a specific digital token associated with each one of these highlights. And they are only minting a certain number of these highlights. So there might be only 4,000 LaMelo Ball highlights that, um, that are minted. And the fun thing that you do is you collect them. And where I think it gets really innovative is they have their own basically trading platform, their own marketplace where you can buy, you can sell. And it's kind of like sports cards. If eBay was the ones that were printing the sports cards, I mean, they basically all the, the issues that you have with sports card trading, you don't have in this digital version. And uh, it's really taken off. And the fact that they've got a license from the NBA has really legitimized their product. The fact that you don't need cryptocurrency to, to buy into Top Shot is a huge thing for them. So I think those are, you know, a lot of the reasons why people are getting excited about it. And of course, you know, the short-term money that a lot of people made on it has certainly made quite a few headlines. Okay. And, and so those people who are, are making uh, that short-term money, are you one of them? Uh, what, what, what's your involvement in Top Shot? Are you actively investing in it or are you just observing this phenomenon from the outside? Well, for me, I, I kind of came into it as a quote unquote flipper. Like I, I looked at it and saw, okay, you can get these packs. They cost $9. You're getting $50 worth of moments that you can sell. Why wouldn't I get in on something like this? Well, at some point in time, the like light clicked in my head and said, um, you know what, this is more than just a, a quick flip situation here. This could really be the next generation 
of sports collectibles slash um, like sports stock market because all of this is done super fast on the blockchain, you know? So everything is, is um, recorded on the flow blockchain. So therefore you know exactly who owns what, how much they own, when they bought it, what they bought it for. And this whole concept for me, the one thing they needed there, they needed to have happen is demand. And the moment that they built up demand and liquidity on their platform, this thing went through the roof. So if I was to liquidate everything I, I have in Topshop, I'd be doing really, really well. But I went from a flipper to, I think long-term, you know, the stuff that, that we're being involved in right now is going to be looked at as, you know, the very beginning of kind of a new industry. And I think that's where the greatest value is, is, is going to happen. So I, I'm in, I'm in, I'm a hodler. Isn't that what the, the kids call it right now? So that's what I'm doing right now. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah. I don't know what that is either, but uh, <laughs> I, I kind of ask you, is, is there like one person out there who's a Boston Celtics fan of many years and all they care about is they want, they want Celtic highlights and they're going to buy whatever ones they can afford and they're going to sit on them and save them. And a couple of months later, they're going to look at them again or a friend comes over and they say, Oh, you got to see my top shot Celtic highlights. Uh, is there like one person doing that or is this pure, you know, uh, flipping or whatever? Um, I think there's a, I think a lot of people are in it for like the short-term gains and, and there's still some of those available because, you know, the, the packs that they offer for people to buy, like, for example, they did one last week, it was $99 to buy the pack, but like the, the average, uh, of what you could sell the, the moments for came down to like four or $500. So it was like a, a complete no brainer situation where even if you don't want to hold on to these things, you can sometimes make a short term gains, but there are people, I, I think it's going to take a longer, I think they, the, the issue that Top Shot ran into is they grew way faster than they ever expected to. And this is something that's been around since last NBA season. And they basically have done 95% of their total transactions in the last month. Think about that for a second. That is wow. hockey stick growth if there's ever been. So I think maybe some of the plans that they had for the platform might have changed or, or certainly, you know, to be able to handle the influx of people has certainly changed because, I mean, there was over 200,000 people waiting in line during that quote unquote pack drop that they call. So everybody waits in line. And then they put you into a queue and they say, okay, if you're in the top, you know, 10,000, you're going to get a pack at $99. So there was 220,000 people who didn't get packs that day or whatever it was. So that just kind of shows you like how viral this thing has gotten. And I think it's, it's somewhat nerve wracking because people look at it as kind of like a bubble. But for me, it's getting them the exposure to this platform and, and learning it like the same way I did and becoming a believer in, in really what it is long term. And, and I, I think that you know, people want to make short term gains. That's fine. But I think in the long run, especially if you're in the collectibles world, you'll see how this is you know, a better way, in my opinion. All right. Well, you, you mentioned that you don't need uh, cryptocurrency to, to buy it, but, um, you know, certainly there is some some overlap in terms of the subject matter with with crypto, with Bitcoin. Uh, I saw a comment on Twitter that compared to Bitcoin, investing in Top Shot has both more upside and less risk. Uh, do, do you agree with that? And, and 
how would you assess the risk? It, what, what is the chance that this is some sort of a fad? And, uh, and if you don't sell what you buy soon, there's a chance that in the not too distant future, it might be totally worthless. Yeah, I think that the floor on it is um, it's pretty safe right now. I mean, I think the influx they've had lately obviously has driven the market higher than it probably should have been. And we've kind of seen some of this correction in the last week. But in the grand scheme of things, uh, it's a supply and demand game. And to say that this would go down to zero would mean that all these, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who are coming on the platform suddenly say, we don't see value in this. And if you told me that, like, even two months ago, I might believe you. But for this many people to have gotten on the platform for this much day to day kind of, you know, trading of these things in terms of buying and selling, you know, I made the, the connection of it being kind of like a sports market or a sports stock market. And we're kind of seeing that already. If a guy does a big moment as a, a big dunk or a big game, uh, people go on and, and, and buy a bunch of their moments. If somebody gets hurt, somebody's not playing well, people will, will sell their moments. So I think its utility can be both collectible and uh, sports kind of a stock market. But as it relates to Bitcoin, like I feel like they're two very, very different things in the grand scheme of things. I think the, the biggest connection I have between the two is you can use Bitcoin to buy it. But the beautiful thing is that is not required. And you know I think that's a huge barrier of entry for a lot of these decentralized um, products uh, and, and, and projects out there. Uh, NFTs people are talking about, but a lot of them you need to, you know, have crypto to, to be a part of it. This you don't need to. You can use your credit card and you can load up your balance and you can start interacting, buying, selling, trading right off the bat. So I think, I think that's one of the appeals and a r- real big reason why this has been successful so fast. Yeah, well, I got to tell you, people from my era, uh, there's sort of a, a, a cliche about how, you know, mom threw all my baseball cards away, uh, yeah. you know, uh, when I grew up. And it was so much of a cliche that Tops even had a, uh, like a contest a few years ago, you know, when, when the card that your mom threw away and it's a Mickey Mantle or whatever. Well, I'm the, I'm the one with the mom who didn't throw any cards away. I've got about 10,000 of them from like late 60s to mid 70s. Uh, sure. I've got Mickey Mantle's last card, which I got for a penny. You know, in the Liggett's drugstore, lady was so nice. It was five cards for a nickel. And if you had a qu- whole quarter, she gave you a free pack. So you got six packs for a quarter. So I've got a Nolan Ryan rookie card. I've got a Rod Carew rookie, rookie card, Johnny Bench rookie card. I've got... Uh, O.J. Simpson, I've got uh, Joe Namath, I've got Will Chamberlain, Abdul Jabbar, Pete Maravich, Bobby Orr, Bobby Hull, you name it, I've got them all. They're in like PS3 condition or or lower, but I've got them, <laughs> damn it. And, you know, in the mid 80s, I actually wanted to sell them as it turned out at its peak as I didn't have that much money. And I knew a friend who was in the business sort of. And I said, look, I'll give you 10, 15 percent commission. Let's just see what we can get for them. And he just couldn't be bothered doing it then of course the market collapsed so i don't feel like selling these cards anyway but is top shot basically and i assume other sports are going to go into this too is that going to ruin you know 50 year old uh, baseball and football cards or is could it possibly help but do you have any feel for that yeah it absolutely won't hurt it i don't think especially the older vintage stuff i mean that stuff will always retain value but it's funny what you just spoke about is why i think top shot is great is because 
unlike your cards that you own, where you need to get them graded or authenticated, then you need to post them on eBay. Who knows if you know how to do that, John, no offense. And uh, then you need to, <laughs> then you need to ship them off. Then you need to make sure yeah. you get paid. There's a lot that goes into it where if I want to sell a LeBron James moment, I click a button. Yes. And then it transfers that token from my account to somebody else's instantaneously. So that is exactly why I think like this is the next wave of collectible, but I don't think it's going to replace cardboard by, by any measure. And, and I think that, you know, I think it's, it's certainly, you know, the collectible space in general is really booming right now. I mean, we've seen yeah. huge investment into uh, golden auctions. You have, you know, the churning group who's, you know, behind uh, a lot of big, you know, investments uh, have been way ahead on a lot of different things. And, and they just poured a ton of money into, you know, the collectibles industry. So I think, I think it's just a wave that's, you know, it's going to, uh, what, what's the saying? The, the wave rides all to, or lifts all tides or the I, I, rising, I'm, I'm, rising, to, rising tide lifts all boats. I think. Is thank you. Thank you. <laughs> See, I, I, I didn't have that, but that's what it is. And I think that's happening with this. And I think, um, you know, at some point in time, we're probably going to see more market correction in, in both of these two things. But as somebody who's like in their 40s, who I was in the era of, you know, over, uh, basically oversupply, they just made way too much of the cards in the 90s. And they've kind of been deemed worthless. It's pretty cool for me to actually be able to see exactly how many of something that I am buying here. So there's only you know, 250 of this Dirk Nowitzki moment that was created, you know, that's pretty cool to me because I know that they're not going to make another one of 5,000 because that defeats the whole point. And, uh, and the fact that, you know, the marketplace is owned by the same people who like create these moments, they have, they're all aligned because they get 5% on every single deal that happens on their platform. So they're incentivized not to not to you know have too large of a supply and water down all their moments. So I just think it's a it's a really really sharp model and uh, and I'm excited about it. Yeah, I think I'm gonna gamble so to speak that my uh, 1960s 70s uh, cards are like uh, vinyl records, which were long gone, and then all of a sudden a new generation came along and said I gotta have vinyl records, especially the original one. And by the way, I have 1970s vinyl records too. Uh, they didn't they didn't get thrown out either. So uh, I've got the cards and the vinyl, and I'm just gonna sit on them, and uh, I'm not gonna worry about Top Shot based on your advice. Thanks. We're we're definitely not gonna give out your home address on this podcast, John, because you just gave people all sorts of incentive. You got old vinyl, baseball cards. Cards. Um, but Dan, if you could sort of like bottom line the, the conversation for me here in terms of, you know, we're at US Bets, we're covering the gambling industry. At Roto Grinders, you're covering sports and gambling and, and daily fantasy and all that. Where does Top Shot fit in exactly? Is it gambling? Have, have you been struggling with how much do we cover this and how do we cover this? It's it's definitely speculative. There's no question about it. And and I kind of view it in in line with the stock market in terms of, you know, trying to see which players are are going to be great, which ones are going to be most valuable, but also trying to look at the gamification of the platform. Like how many are they, you know, did they, I've really loaded up on the series one because the, the minty numbers of these moments are really low down the road. Are we going to be looking at things, uh, you know, of, of 200,000 instead of 2000. And, you know, I think there's a lot of kind of speculation that goes around that. And, you know, you mentioned other sports, are they going to get into it? And I think that's a great question. 
and not only am I sure they're going to get into it, I think the larger question is, how does that kind of affect the top shop market? You know, does mm -hmm. it make it more desirable or do people suddenly care more about the NFL version or does this suddenly become the, the sports stock market where you have all the different sports under one umbrella and you're constantly, you know, uh, in investing and selling and buying and trading. I, I think it's, it's an exciting time to see an industry kind of literally pop up overnight. And we're so early in it that, you know, the, this company Dapper Labs, like they, they kind of have a blank canvas to do what they want which is really, I'm jealous. I'd love to be in their <laughs> shoes to be able to say, hey, I'm going to dictate, you know, how this next generation maybe of, of collecting is going to go. So um, yes, there, there's going to be pitfalls down the road and, and it is a highly speculative, you know, situation now because we're seeing these moments sell for thousands of dollars. Like you, if you want, you know, a LeBron James from the first season when he did the Kobe tribute dunk, you can get it. It's going to cost you, I don't know, $10,000 to get it, but you can get it. Now, Does if it's, you know, five years from now, could that be worth 100,000? Who knows? Maybe, you know, if this takes off and is being looked at as like the beginning of something new. So I, I think it's, it's definitely speculative on the high end, but I think what makes it great is even if you don't have the thousands of dollars to pour in, you could still get these packs for $9, $99, and more than likely have a good time on the platform, maybe make some money uh, in the short term. And who knows, you might even buy into it the same way that I did. Right. Wow. All right. Fascinating stuff. I feel like I have a, a better understanding of it than I did 15, 20 minutes ago. So we appreciate you uh, coming on and explaining all this to us, Dan. No problem, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Dan. I, I still don't have a feel for it, but I thank you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. Anyone can have a winning week in sports betting. Anyone can have a couple of winning weeks, really. Even three winning weeks in a row. Anyone can do that. But four? Four straight winning weeks? Okay, yeah, pr pretty much anyone can do that, too. Uh, but still, for us, after the cold streak we hit for much of the fall, four straight winning weeks in a row is a big deal. And, John, you get all the credit for extending it from three to four. My NBA same-game parlay bet last week was a loser. Uh, Tobias Harris had a complete dud of a game and then got injured in the third quarter. We only hit two of our four props, so we lost 100 bucks on that. But John's golf bets delivered. On the men's side, Patrick Reed, top 20 for even money, was an easy winner. We won $100 there. On the women's side, the Annika Sorenstam, top 20, long shot missed. And Lydia Ko to win outright, looked good for a little while, but ultimately fell short. Those cost us $10 and $20, respectively. But $70 on Ko for the top 10 at plus 188 was a winner, producing a $132 profit. So add it all up, and we won $102 on the week. And whereas we were down as much as $1,511 earlier this year, we're now only $656 behind where we started. We also have $1,203 on hold in futures bets. So that leaves us with $8,141 available to bet with this week. And you're up first, John. 
Well, I got to say the read bet just kind of shows what an amateur gambler I am because uh, I recognize the the incredibly good line there. But I mean, there's only 72 players in that field. And if you look closer at it, unlike some of these invitationals where you get world class players from all over the world, there were about 20 guys who had no business even been in this tournament, really. So he, we were looking at top 20 out of maybe 50. So I should have bet more and I should have gone for a top 10, which also would have paid off. And of course, he had the lead midday Friday, in fact although he, he had a bad Sunday and barely finished in the top 10, but I just said, Oh, that's my hundred. That's what I usually do. And it's like, that was, that was a, a place to pounce. And I just didn't. So it was a win. It was boring. The guy never was out of the top 10 the whole weekend. So it wasn't even uh, talking about no sweat. It was no interest. So uh, that being said, you know, I worry that there was a, a United Kingdom golfer who flashed a little too much form last week uh, to get me a good price for the Arnold Palmer invitational this weekend. And I don't mean Rory McIlroy and his tie for six that has him as a way too short price in a lackluster field. I mean, England's Matthew Fitzpatrick, who off a tie for 11th is a steal for a top 20 at 100 to win 125, given his recent form and horse for course status. So that gives me a little leeway, by the way, to go 20 more at plus 2200 for Fitz to win the damn thing. All right. Uh, so it's sort of interesting how you've you've sort of flip flop back and forth on do you uh, do you in addition to your top 20 ish bet, do you, do you go yeah. for the win or the top five? Yeah. And you've noticed how that you noted how that's often siphoned away a little of your winnings, but uh, yeah, yeah, you know, for 20 bucks, let's give it a shot. But uh, those, those little bit of Patrick Reed regrets are uh, showing, uh, showing up here. Maybe, uh, although it's not like he won the thing. So anyway, uh, I am going to add one more to our roster of MLB futures bets. I'm going with a player prop. I don't want to call it a lock because we saw how that worked out with my Gronk under yards bet. But uh, again, I am taking an under because there are always many paths to the under. And I found a line that I think is too high, even assuming perfect health. Uh, DraftKings set a line of 37 and a half home runs for Bryce Harper. And as much as I don't want to spend the season rooting against Harper hitting homers, I got to do it. That line is just too high in a nine year career. Harper has gone over 37.5 homers once when he hit 42 in his 2015 MVP season. Since joining the Phillies, where he does admittedly play at a hitter's park, he hit 35 in 2019, playing almost every game. He played 157 games. And last year in the shortened season, he hit 13 on pace for 36 if he played 162 games. So assuming perfect health, you know, let's say he plays 160 games, just sits out a couple of games just because. 37.5 is still about two homers above projection. Uh, That's assuming perfect health. You know, one tweaked hamstring and the under becomes a huge favorite. Uh, It's priced at minus 118 on the under, but that's fine with me. And in terms of the amount to bet, I'll split the difference between the normal weekly $100-ish bet and my season-long standard $200-ish bet. Let's bet $177 to win 150 Harper under 37 and a half homers this season. Yeah, I think you get one other possibility, which is that uh, MLB has been very uh, hazy about what kind of baseballs they're going to use this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's possible they're not going to be as uh, lively as they were in the past. So if that happens, that's another out for you. And yeah. the hamstring is, yeah, that's uh, that's probably going to happen. So uh, I like that pick. Um, I just did a story for MIBets.com, our Michigan-specific website. And on the season-ending back-to-backs for Michigan, which is seeking a number one seed, and Michigan State, which is scrambling to even make the uh, March Madness tournament. Uh, 
So give me the Spartans, who in recent days have knocked off Big Ten royalty, Illinois and Ohio State, at plus 11.5 points in Thursday night's game at 110 to win 100. I mean, sure, it's a great rivalry, but Michigan needs only to split these pair of games or have Illinois lose its last game to win the regular season. And then what really matters is going to be winning the conference tournament anyway. So this is a tune-up time for Michigan. I expect the Spartans to fight like, well, Spartans and cover for me. <laughs> All right. Uh, and uh, for my final bet this week, you scored with women's golf last week. Uh, I'm going women's boxing. It is a light boxing weekend. Uh, the biggest fight is Friday in Flint, Michigan, headlining an all women's pay-per-view undefeated two-time Olympic gold medalist Claressa Shields from Flint uh, faces a solid unbeaten opponent, Marie-Yves DeCare. I'll spare you the details. Just know that Shields is outstanding. Uh, she's a huge favorite here. She's about 12 to one to win but she almost never scores knockouts. It's really hard to in these two minute rounds that the women fight the price for shields by decision is minus two twenty five, which might sound somewhat steep, but I really think there's about an 85% chance. That's the result here. So let's risk $112 to win 50 bucks, just betting small, a little relatively safe padding to hopefully help us get to a fifth straight winning week. Rooting for a lady to not get knocked out. I, I feel a little more comfortable with that. <laughs> Good. Okay. I'm glad I could <laughs> appeal to, uh, to, to you with that one. All right. That'll chivalry do... there. Yes. Yes. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Dan Bach. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow us bets at us underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, Apple podcasts, or Spotify. And with that, John, please take us out. Well, Eric, it's time for a little March madness history lesson uh, prompted by the elimination this week of my alma mater from bracket consideration. Oh, well, those <laughs> under 50 might be surprised to learn the NCAA tournament only had 16 teams until 1975 and it doubled at that point to 32. But the real magic didn't happen until 1985. That's when the field expanded to 64 teams and allowed every conference tournament winner around the country a spot in the big dance. Uh, presumably, I would think this was seen as a way for the top-seeded teams to get glorified scrimmages against a 16-seeded collection of cannon fodder just before moving on to that more familiar field of uh, 32 teams from a decade earlier. And sure enough, top seeds St. John's, Oklahoma, and Georgetown, they won their contest by a combined 62 points. So uh, that's held up. But wait. Michigan, that's where my alma mater comes into the story. Uh, on one day, 13th seeded Navy smoked fourth seed LSU. Number five, Maryland needed OT to claim a one point win over some school called Miami of Ohio. And the fourth and final game in a Dayton gym that night was going to feature the host school in an eight nine game that seemingly was to determine Michigan's second round victim and nothing more. But this was the last tournament for the advent of the shot clock. And the Wolverines' outmanned opponent worked that way to their advantage. Uh, by halftime, many Dayton fans and plenty of other Ohio locals had arrived at their seats early, you know, waiting for the last game. They looked up at the halftime score and noticed, wait, FDU 26, Michigan 20? What the hell's an FDU? And who cares? <laughs> Michigan. Woohoo! So as the second half begins, the squad of my alma mater, Fairleigh Dickinson University, named after a guy, by the way, named Fairleigh Dickinson, uh, they're greeted with thunderous chants of FDU, FDU by the Ohioans in the crowd. So a team that had never played before more than about 200 people in their North Jersey high school quality gym suddenly was enveloped by passion from thousands. However, the reason, who cares? They were, they were, they were, they were getting rooted for like they never had before. And the Knights battled gamely or better. They took a 10-point lead with 14 minutes left against a number one seed. And the day and Jim was bedlam. 
The Wolverines' talents then sent them on a 33-11 to run for a double-digit lead with seven minutes left. But the sarcastic Ohio residents didn't quit, and neither did my Knights, who even with four players having fouled out, they mounted a furious rally to get within two points with 10 seconds left. Uh, finally, ill-fated big man Roy Tarpley, the Big Ten Player of the Year that year, who was one year away from being a Dallas Mavericks lottery pick, he knocked down two free throws to end the uprising. But this was exactly the March Madness that CBS announcer Brett Musburger had begun touting in 1982. Uh, Dayton then lost a nail-biter to eight-seeded Villanova that night. Two days later, the Wildcats knocked off Mighty Michigan and route to perhaps the most stunning run to an NCAA championship in tournament history, as Hoops Royalty Maryland, North Carolina, Memphis, and Georgetown, with Patrick Ewing, could not stop the Villanova Cinderella story. Now, would Michigan have tossed that glass slipper in the dumpster if FD would not rattle them so much in that first round, uh, thus depriving us of two shiny moments? What if the game hadn't been played in Ohio of all places? You know, we'll never know for sure, but these were the founding moments of the launch of the rocket ship that is now March Madness. And finally, in 2021, we have numerous states that are allowing their citizens to bet on it legally for the first time, if they so choose. So with that, finally, until next time, gamble on, everybody, and embrace the madness, but responsibly.